arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. The four of you will remain here in the brig and in custody until I discover how to return you to wherever it is you belong. There's a whole galaxy gone crazy. What kind of a uniform is this? Where's your beer? What's going on? Where's my personal guard? I can answer none of your questions at this time. <laughs> All right, Spark. Whatever your game is, I'll play it. You want credits, I'll give them to you. You'll be a rich man. A commander your own? I can swing that too. Apparently, some kind of transposition has taken place. I find it extremely interesting. Spark, what is it that will buy you? Power? Fascinating. Power Spark! I can get that for you! Anyone that knows me knows of my unusual obsession with Star Trek, the original series. It used to just be called Star Trek, and then all the other series came after. We'll get into that in another podcast. In Mirror Mirror, we've just heard the Kirk from one universe scream at the Spock from a present universe. I didn't use Mirror Mirror as a basis for a world without her. There are also two Twilight Zones that come to mind that I viewed growing up. One where an army major wakes up in a room where four other people, like the major, do not know how they got into this reality. The second Twilight Zone, I will note, is Keenan Wynn playing a writer who dictates his characters to life. All female, of course. All this stuff was somewhere in my head, along with dozens of other stories and TV shows about parallel universes, multi-universes, etc. when I wrote Alternatives, which became A World Without Her. When I had a long-term relationship blow up, I transposed those feelings into the plot and characters that will be revealed shortly. I accomplished these so-called parallel worlds with the aid of science fiction, but Peter Sturgis's journey was my journey in a drama with villains and lost loves and a hope for the future. I was stunned to see that my book A World Without Her Sounds exactly like the premiere of The Twilight Zone on July 1st, 1960, which was Keenan Wynn starring in a world of his own. Not intentional, not even consciously arrived at. The villain in my book is Ricardo, and it is not the alien technology that is evil. Rather, it is Ricardo's use of that power. Let's enter the world of Ricardo, or should I say, one of the worlds of Ricardo and his servant, Martin. The prologue of A World Without Her by Robert P. Fitton begins now. Capistrelle, France, August 6, 1999. It was not the first time he had murdered, nor would it be the last. Ricardo slicked back his dark wet hair and started up the white marble villa steps, stirring the crispy leaves in his wake. If he did not act with great alacrity, the national police would sweep the grounds and discover he had slashed the French woman's throat and pushed her limp body into the villa pool. Survival, not remorse, dominated his psyche. Remaining in this reality even for a day was risky. He would journey to Cibola, where the entities would transcend him into another world. He barked into the cellular as he skidded onto the veranda. Martin! Martin! If necessary, he would leave Martin behind. The little scrounger, having bolted earlier with some tramp, 
had taken a joyride in his car and spent his money. After 500 years, Martin did not appreciate his benevolence. Martin would have died at the mountain pass without his mercy at Cibola so long ago. The cellular connected to a scratchy transmission. Martin's voice wavered. Yeah. Martin, where are you? Coming past the gate, old friend. The woman with Martin laughed in the background. <laughs> Incensed, Ricardo sharpened his focus beyond the rippling palms and the long linear gardens to his tiny yellow sports car racing through the front gate. Move your arse! He pressed the phone to his ear as the car spun up the hill. <laughs> What's the problem? asked Martin. We're going to Cibola. You're kidding. This is no joke, Martin. They needed to board the corporate jet well in advance of the police snooping around the villa. And then in 18 hours, they could be at Cibola. Martin revved the engine and then skidded to a stop on the gravel. As Ricardo descended the veranda steps, his thin, gray-haired friend leaped over the driver's door. Ricardo rounded the hood, yanked the blonde from the car, and hurled her across the driveway stones. Get back in the car, Martin. Martin's shaky nerves always made his hands tremble. He slid into the passenger seat as Ricardo gripped the wooden steering wheel and shifted and spun around in a wide semicircle. Stones kicked up behind them as a trail of swirling dust billowed upward. Martin stared at the naked body face down in the pool as they passed. That woman is dead. Shut up. We're heading to the Marseille airport. Are you crazy killing her? The longer this goes on, the more chances you take. She pushed me, said Ricardo, his knuckles whiter on the wheel. The blue ocean spread outward along the coast. Claudette should never have tried blackmail. But to kill her... Ricardo slowly smiled and squinted into the sun. No one challenges me, Martin. No one. The hum of the jet engines assured Ricardo they had escaped trouble. He confidently gazed out the portal as the jet banked over the island. The white sands and slow-moving breakers were bathed in twilight along the coast. He gripped his pen and perused his papers on the table, and then verified his calculations on his laptop. In this new world, he would become a powerful figure in the defense establishment. Power resided with armaments. 200 years ago, during the American Revolution, he had amassed a fortune supplying arms early to the colonists. The thought of that duplicitous Franklin, the chief of the rebels, and his lying spies upset him even now. The British nearly arrested him just after Christmas because Franklin's contacts had divulged his dealing with the Frenchman and his smugglers. He had fled with Martin from Le Havre at the end of January 1777. The voyage made him rich. He remembered the cargo well. 54-pound cannons, 14,000 muskets, 100,000 flints, and assorted munitions. After docking in Portsmouth, New Hampshire in late April, he and Martin stayed in the shadows. The image of the powerfully built Washington on his white horse outside Morristown, had remained with him. He smiled subtly as the jet paralleled the coast. As the millennium approached, today's technologies and expenditures bore no semblance to the cannon and musket of those days, but his lust for power and fortune had become ingrained in his soul. Again, Ricardo studied his notes on the laptop. By constructing a reality geared toward the prodigious defense expenditures, he would possess a private empire, 
selling to the government as he accumulated great wealth and power. He wanted to work instead of subsisting within the playboy atmosphere of the last 14 months. Martin slept with his arms folded across his blue polo shirt. His unshaven face and disheveled gray hair gave him a crude appearance. He had whined about leaving this scenario, but staying behind would have only hastened his demise. A number of companies fit his profile. In 16 hours, they would land in Denver and then be whisked off by helicopter over the craggy snow peaks to Cibola. The consciousness of the entities residing within a galactic civilization's remnant outpost would elevate his desire for a powerful defense corporation into a new reality. Chapter 1 Westerly, New York, August 6, 1999 The sun warmed Peter's face as he scampered up the shaky platform and he shielded his eyes as he panned a colorful, cheering crowd of friends and citizens of Westerly, New York. He raised his arm upward when the school band produced a strained rendition of Stars and Stripes Forever. Jeannie and the kids jumped up and down, applauding from the first row as he approached Susan. She smiled and pointed to a huge red, white, and blue banner draped over Westerly's middle school's brick wall. Westerly days, Peter Sturgis, Citizen of the Year, Westerly, New York. Congratulations, Peter. She shook his hand and spoke over the crowd noise resonating off the wall. You aren't thinking of running for mayor against me, are you? I'm one of your biggest supporters, Susan. Good, I think you'd trounce me if a vote were held today. She tapped the silver microphone a few times and raised her arms to quell the crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for that warm applause for this man beside me. You know him as the coach of Westerly Ford's Little League team, assistant scoutmaster of Troop 35. What you don't know is how much money he's raised for charity. Susan turned toward Peter. How am I doing? Don't stop, he said, laughing with the crowd. He's worked at Rycom Corporation for the past 13 years, first as an accountant, now in the controller's department. He's a great father to his four children and has been married for 15 years to his wife, Jeannie. I am describing, ladies and gentlemen, Westerly's Citizen of the Year, Peter Sturgis. Mildly embarrassed, Peter inched up to the microphone stand and stared at the long white Rycom building wedged between the linear purple mountain range and the puffy little clouds hovering over the ridges. His family and friends continued the applause. But what he had found on the RICOM computers last night squelched his jubilation. Melvin had aided him in a computer audit after they had spotted irregularities on a report two weeks ago. He snapped back to the ceremony as the crowd noise simmered to a breezy silence. First, I want to thank my manager. He pointed to Jeannie's furrowed mass of brown hair as she flashed her reassuring smile. He waved her and the kids up on the platform. Jeannie led them up the stairs, and she kissed Peter and put her arms around him. Then she leaned toward the mic. Do not, and I repeat, do not give Peter Sturgis the mic. Peter opened his mouth. Are you saying I'm long-winded? Yes, yelled Big Fred Watson from the Chamber of Commerce. He stood with his petite wife, and his jowl shook from his cheekbones to his shirt collar when he laughed. Well, that reminds me of a story, said Peter. A little boy grows up amidst the beautiful Ganenke Mountains. 
He's brought through the Westerly Public Schools and then goes away to college. And there, on the first day of classes, he meets this, this woman who refuses to go out with him. Well, I had a boyfriend, said Jeannie, cupping her hand to her mouth. Peter lip smiled and he paused. Had a boyfriend. Near the school's chain-link fence, the smoke from Melvin's cigarette billowed upward as he faced the mountains. To continue, he meets his sweetheart, returns home, and raises a family. He finds a career with a great company, and I thank Rycom, the company that has allowed me to do well here in Westerly. Now, I promised Susan I would not go on. As he took one step from the microphone, Susan held up a huge gold trophy. Peter Sturgis, as mayor of Westerly, and as a part of Westerly Days, I am proud to name you Citizen of the Year. She placed the trophy in Peter's hands. He faced the applauding crowd. I thank you all, I thank my family, and I thank my wonderful wife. Jeannie and the kids ran over to him. He hugged her through the new round of cheering. Peter, Jeannie, and the kids then left the platform and merged into the crowd. Don Williams from the Little League and a westerly cop patted him on the shoulder. Attaboy, Peter. Thanks, Donnie. Jonathan, his white baseball uniform dirt smeared, shook his hand and spoke in a serious tone. Nice going, Dad. You're the one who won the game with that double, he said, embracing his son. Tears welled in Wendy's brown eyes. I'm just so proud of you, Dad. She hugged him and Peter's throat tightened. Coming from a teenager, I consider that an act of courage. Not bad, Daddy, said little Petey. Peter ruffled his thick mop of brown hair. Jeannie quickly wiped a tear off her cheek and then raised her brow. What? You and I have a date. Ricardo is coming to town, and Rycom is having a big company bash. Well, how romantic, but I'll take it. Then I take that as a yes. She had an amazing smile. Sign me up. His arm around Jeannie, Peter and the kids were met by the gray-haired, chain-smoking Melvin. His friend fidgeted with his dark-rimmed glasses and spoke in a low, grumbling voice. Uh, congrats, Peter. A lull in the action, Melvin? Can I talk to you for a minute? Sure. He raised his brows to Jeannie and shrugged his shoulders. I'll be right back. Jeannie nodded and Peter trailed Melvin under the bleachers. Melvin, it's Sunday. You don't have to wear your white shirt and tie. Melvin turned quickly. Peter, we have to meet with Barringer from the IRS tomorrow. Ricardo is in serious trouble. Hey, Peter, the high school baseball coach waved as he jogged by the bleachers. Good job, buddy. Thanks, Tommy. Peter turned and held Melvin's shoulder. Look, Melvin. I just want to work my job here in Westerly. I know what Ricardo has done is bad, but may of all people in Washington. Meet me over the lodge tomorrow afternoon at 2.30. Melvin, I've got a wife and four kids and a sometimes not too bright dog. I don't want to rock the boat by going after Ricardo. And you, you're ready to retire and open up a chain of cleaners, right? Ah, I don't have the money for that. Listen, Peter, I don't think you understand. This is the IRS. I would make it a point to be there. Okay, Mel. I'll be there, but only because I have to. Good. I'll leave a message for Berenger. Thank you. Melvin briefly tapped his shoulder and turned. He quickly removed his lighter and lit a cigarette as he shuffled along the fence. His body hunched and he crossed the school parking lot and got inside his white Subaru compact. Peter creased his brow. He never thought the IRS would snoop into this. 
With the IRS involved, where would his innocent audit lead? Chapter 2 Peter backed his maroon Highlander into a space under the leafy trees in front of the lodge hall's cinder blocks. He got a strong whiff of hamburgers and fries as he entered the dimly lit hall through the battered aluminum door up front. The Yankees game blasted from the elevated portable TV in the corner. A few guys sat along the Formica tables and more sat at the bar, but Melvin had not yet arrived. All of his friends stood and pretended to bow. Any special requests, Peter? asked Richie from behind the bar. He had straight brown sideburns and a perpetual beard shadow and beady brown eyes. After all, you are citizen of the year. Eddie Fitzpatrick raised his frothy beer mug. It's Citizen Sturgis! Be sure and post that in the window at the gas station, said Peter. Listen, has anybody seen Melvin? He'll follow the cigarette trail. I told Melvin to cut down, but he just keeps smoking, said Peter as he sidestepped to the bar. Thick comb marks furrowed through Richie's greasy black hair. Melvin call, Richie? He was supposed to meet me here at 2.30. Richie wiped the glossy wood bar with a white linen rag. Old Melvin usually spends Sunday with his wife's sister. I like Melvin. Good guy. It's his wife that's a lunatic. Well, Mildred can be a little emotional at times. I don't know how many times Melvin has been in here after taking a verbal pounding. This is true. The aluminum door slammed and the silver-haired Melvin, belly bulging into his white shirt, scanned the lodge and then strutted down the bar. Richie put his hands on his hips. Speak of the devil if it isn't Melvin Purvis. Purvis worked for the FBI, said Melvin. He adjusted his dark glasses and kept a stern face. Peter smiled, but he sensed fear in Melvin's shaky voice, and the evident fatigue resided in the pronounced bags under his eyes. Melvin positioned himself on the next stool, said nothing, and lit a cigarette. He shook the match before pitching it into the bulky glass ashtray. Where's the lighter, Melvin? asked Peter. Ran out. Richie pulled the tap and filled two chilled mugs and set the mugs on the counter. Thanks, Richie. Melvin exhaled and grabbed the mug handle and stared at Peter. He wiggled his frame off the stool. We need to talk. Come on. Was it something I said? asked Richie, flashing his white teeth. You call me Purvis again and I'll kick your butt, Richie. Richie smiled and pointed both index fingers at him. Peter drifted with the smoke to a back booth. Melvin set his beer on the laminated table and squeezed into the tight-fitting booth. Ah, Mildred keeps telling me I need to shed 20 pounds. Melvin, what's this thing about the frigging IRS? Have I got you sufficiently upset? Yes, you've got me sufficiently upset. Is this guy Beringer really coming over here? I don't think I can fully address that question. Then why have you dragged me down here on a Sunday afternoon? My plans were to bring Jeannie and the kids over to my brother Mike's house in Wharton. They left for Wharton 15 minutes ago. Barringer is on his way over here. Melvin sucked in the cigarette for at least five seconds, and his words trailed out with the smoke. They want to get Ricardo. Melvin, let's drop it. Just drop it. He jammed his fingers back through his hair. I don't want any trouble. I don't think you fully understand the magnitude of this thing at Rycom, Peter. Peter gulped his beer and swallowed as he spoke. I know what we found was serious, but did you actually call Beringer? Melvin's silence made him uneasy. Then you did call him, Melvin. If Ricardo ever found out what you did, he'd can us both. 
I have kids to feed. Peter, those kickbacks are illegal. Listen, I think Ricardo's people might know about our hacking his computers. Peter closed his eyes. Everything had gone so smoothly both at work and at home before all this nonsense. He had worked at RICOM for a total of 13 years, his real first job since college, and he had started at the order entry position. Nights and weekends had pushed him into newer and more challenging positions. He relished the added responsibility and the money accorded to the advancement. Okay, they traced the money back to us. What can Ricardo do to us? He's a powerful man. We need the IRS. Who knows what he could do to us? Peter leaned back and banged his fist on the table. He closed his eyes again as he thought, What the hell did you tell this Barringer? Well, everything we know, the fudge records, the government payoffs. Peter turned back to the door as Melvin lit another cigarette. His stomach wrenched in anticipation of an IRS grilling. For the next 15 minutes, he pressed and rolled his lips repeatedly and shook his foot under the table. Within the haze of Melvin's smoke, he forgot about the baseball game on TV. The luminous Budweiser clock behind the bar neared three o'clock as the front door opened and a slight, dark-haired man in a red plaid jersey and jeans walked upright across the speckled linoleum. Melvin's hand shot upward, disrupting the billowing smoke. The man nodded, but his unflinching face intimidated Peter. Hey, Melvin, I'm sorry I was late. I was caught up in a conference call outside. He stretched his hand out to Peter. Mr. Sturgis, I'm uh, Phil Barringer, Internal Revenue Service. Seems like you already know who I am, said Peter. Must be in one of those files you guys keep. Nope, uh, that's just a deduction, said Barringer. No pun intended. Melvin's laugh segued into a chunky cough. <laughs> Even Peter could not resist chuckling. Numbers and stats inundated Barringer's world, yet he had a sense of humor. I thought all you guys wore white shirts and black ties. You mean like Melvin? Like Melvin. Peter motioned to Richie to bring a beer to Barringer. During the next half hour, Barringer spoke in a deliberate yet forceful way. Because Peter and Melvin worked in the controller's office and had access to the financial records, he wanted them to provide his office with incriminating information on Ricardo. Once they reviewed the raw data, an official federal investigation could go forward. There's another consideration. You guys know that Ricardo is coming into town this week. He's scheduled a dinner for employees. We hope he's not in town just to find out if anyone suspects his activities. Hopefully this is just a PR thing. Melvin ground his cigarette into the green metal ashtray and leaned toward Barringer. Ricardo never visits the plant. I'm very leery of this. Melvin, you're leery of everything, said Peter. Peter, I need to hide a recording device on you and Melvin. You should engage Ricardo in a conversation about... What? I don't even know Ricardo. Peter now had a burning sensation in his stomach. What, what, what do I do? Walk up to him and say, Hey, Ricardo, speak into the mic. I need you to tell me in detail, of course, how you defrauded the United States government. Berenger, genuinely laughing, took another sip of beer. I don't think he will know or even remotely suspect that one of his employees will be recording him. We can take care of the legal ramifications. Wait a minute, Mr. Berenger, please. You just got through telling me how savvy this guy is, how suspicious he is, how he might be on to us. And now you want me to go in there wired and record him. Come on, if he ever finds out, he won't, replied Berenger. There is an additional consideration. Peter shook his head. 
putting Jeannie and the kids in jeopardy made him uneasy. Here comes Melvin. He's going to start telling us about our patriotic duty. We can't have people like Ricardo milking taxpayer money. Think about it. Your money and mine loaded on a conveyor belt leading right into Ricardo's pocket. That's intolerable to me. He's an arrogant self-promoter who deserves to be behind bars. I need your help. Peter stroked his chin and then shook his head. I don't know. I, I don't know if I can take the chance. Beringer paused for a minute, as if he were empathizing with Peter. He held his beer glass and leaned closer. Okay, I won't push you. But Peter, Ricardo will be in town for the dinner party on Thursday night. Isn't that right, Melvin? Friday. Friday at the plaza. Eight o'clock. So you have some time to think about it. You won't be broadcasting, Peter. You'll be recording. This device is so minuscule, no one will even see it, not even your wife. Listen, I'll think about it. That's all I can tell you. Okay. Good enough. Beringer removed a red-leaded card from his black leather wallet and handed it to Peter. I appreciate your meeting with me this afternoon. He slid across the bench and stood next to the table. I'll be speaking with you. Beringer dragged a crisp $20 bill from his wallet as he crossed the room and set it under the glass ashtray on the Formica counter. He gave a karate chop wave to Peter. The slamming aluminum door preceded the sound of his boots against the linoleum. Peter turned to Melvin. All right, Melvin, let's hear it. You have to do it, Peter. You can't leave me alone, Peter. You're the only guy who can do it, Peter. Correct all the above. This is not an easy decision. I have to think about this. I think you're worrying about this way too much, Peter. There's no way Ricardo will know. No way. He pointed at Melvin and spoke in a lower voice. I hear you, Melvin, but there's this little voice inside my head that keeps getting louder. And that voice is telling me to mind my own business and to let them take care of it. That way, my life goes on as it should. Chapter 3 Ricardo emerged from the bedroom, draped his shirt over his shoulders, and pushed his arms into the sleeves. He slammed the door with his foot to get Martin's attention. Martin at the suite's main table, looked up from his laptop. Ricardo raised his voice as he buttoned the shirt. Martin, we should have brought women up here with us. Well, what's the matter now? What's the matter? I don't want a woman in there who doesn't know what the hell she's doing. These local girls can go. You screwed up. Martin checked more ledger figures on the laptop. I thought we were leaving in the morning. Well, we are. He buttoned the top button of his ruffled shirt and removed the tie from the hanger. Is this my regular tux? And where are my cufflinks? It is your tux from your line. The cufflinks are in the top drawer. Everything is becoming a problem. I'll make arrangements to have women brought up here if that's what you want. Good. I'm glad you understand that you fumbled. Ricardo finished tying the knot as Martin closed the laptop and slid it forward on the table and then quickly crossed the room. That's why I like you, Martin. You always know how to go with the flow. Martin carefully removed the black velvet tuxedo jacket from the padded hanger and held it in the air. Ricardo fiddled with his cufflinks for at least half a minute before slowly slipping into the tuxedo. He paraded to the full-length mirror, studied his appearance thoroughly, then placed a fresh rose from the bouquet the bellhop had delivered into his lapel. With a half-smile, he nodded. Perfect. Ricardo, before we go downstairs, we need to discuss the audits and the cash flow. 
What's the matter, Martin? Cash flow? What is it, Martin? Cash flow? I do not want to discuss business right now. Martin gripped the hanger tightly and slung it onto the bed. Well, you better start thinking about business and who's looking into your business, or head back to Cibola and check out of this reality. Oh, not this threat of investigation again. You just love being on the edge, taunting your enemies right up to the point of your demise. Yes, I'm talking about full-scale investigations. Well, I have people working on it. It'll never come to full-scale hearings, nor will it enter the court system. The lawyers have assured me that they can keep it out of the courts for another year. By then, we'll be back at Cibola and off on another merry adventure. He pinched Martin's cheeks. You worry too much, my old friend. Martin looked too scared to swat away his hands. If you let this thing gain momentum, you won't be going back to Cibola. They'll have you locked up somewhere, and God help you if you think you can buy your way out of that one. Martin, it's not at the level you think. I'm not worried. He placed his hand on Martin's shoulder. If I thought there was even a one in ten chance of jeopardizing Cibola, I would bail out in a second. We may be virtually immortal now, aging minutes while decades go by, but I think you're getting as bored as you were in France. Do I look bored running Rycom? <laughs> you're taking things too lackadaisically. It's almost like you wanted a chance at all, like it gives you some kind of ultra thrill to get to the edge. He slowly shook his head and then pointed his finger. I appreciate your concern, old friend. It's noted. Now let's get downstairs. The beloved employees of RICOM, Westerly, are awaiting their leader. Martin cleared his throat and Ricardo turned. I have to make a few phone calls. What? What? The woman. You wanted women. Ricardo prayed it across the room. I'll be down there, Martin. You do the dirty work. He disappeared into the three-room suite's foyer, and then the heavy wood-paneled door shut behind him. Martin sat on the edge of the bed and picked up the desk phone, but he hesitated before placing the call to New York City. I'll do the dirty work, Ricardo. Again. Playing the understudy to Ricardo all these years had never bothered him. Even back in Spain before they sailed with Coronado to the New World, he had been a merchant for Ricardo's business concerns in Madrid. Lately... Doing his bidding increased the stress level. Ricardo would bark out too many orders, sometimes belligerently, forgetting their past friendship, treating him more as if he were a servant. Often, Martin had thought about running back to Cibola alone. The entities viewed Ricardo as the first human they had encountered at Cibola. Maybe they thought first come, first served applied, or perhaps they believed Ricardo qualified as some kind of leader. Thus, the entities formed alternative realities for Ricardo. Maybe these realities could be formed without Ricardo. Chapter 4 His neck tightened as he maneuvered the Highlander down the concrete driveway. Years of dreaming and planning made possible the Tudor-style house that he and Jeannie had built. Peter constructed his own office downstairs next to the huge family room and Jeannie had an area of her own on the second floor and a spacious new kitchen downstairs. Each of the kids now had their own bedrooms on the second floor, with the master bedroom off the hall downstairs. Framed photos of the family filled the living room's china-white walls, and a larger family portrait hung over the flowing fieldstone fireplace. Rusty's barking prompted him to slow the van. His Irish setter ran around the garage, and Peter stopped. When he opened the window, Rusty put his two paws on the edge. Peter laughed and ruffled the fur on his head. 
Hey, did anybody feed this guy? Jonathan fed him. Good dog, Rusty. Time to go. Go sit down. Rusty sprang back and jaunted to the wide cement steps and sat down. He actually did it, Jeannie. He actually sat down. Will miracles never cease? Peter, still smiling, finally backed into the cul-de-sac and glanced at Rusty on the front steps. His smile fell away as the butterflies in his stomach indicated he might be caught. The gas gauge light sounded as he drove toward Frederick Street. Jeannie grinned. All day long, she had warned him they were low on gas. Peter banked onto Frederick and chugged up Main Street toward the center of town. He signaled at Eddie Fitzpatrick's shell station and rolled up to the pumps right under the wide canopy. Eddie, wearing his yellow gas station shirt, exited the garage with little Nicky Perducas from the Silver Hometown Diner next door. They razzed Peter about being Citizen of the Year, even before he put the nozzle in the tank. Brownie points to Susan, said Eddie, pretending to kiss. I never thought of that. You can use that next year, Eddie, when you make Citizen of the Year, and after you lower the price of gas. Hey, I don't make any money on my gas. Before or after you add the water, said Nicky. Eddie grinned and looked at Jeannie. I see half of you guys look spiffy tonight. We're having a big get-together at Rycom, said Jeannie. Oh, you two have a great time. Eddie leaned closer and cupped his hand near his mouth as he whispered, Not often you and the old man get out. I heard that, said Peter as he removed the nozzle. Then he reached for his wallet and pulled out some cash. We have to be going. Well, have a good time, said Nicky as they both winked at Peter. He grinned and rounded the van. We will. Eddie hit the rear window as Peter started the Highlander. As he drove back down Main Street, he smiled. He looked down the long stretch of buildings paralleling the mountains. You're a lucky guy, Sturgis. You've got a good family, a great dog, and your town's behind you. The job is great. He worried about the risk as he held Jeannie's hand. Below the tree-lined mountains, the linear Rikon plant glowed white in the late afternoon sun. The plaza's brick buildings cast a wide shadow over the cars and side lots. Hotel shops were located along a veranda that extended over a side road to the ballrooms on the other side. She squeezed his hand as they perused the high-priced clothing and jewelry inside the storefront windows. Outside the window span, the incandescent lights blinked on across the town after sunset. Jeannie brushed Rusty's fur from Peter's dark suit, and then she adjusted his new red tie. Although Peter had relished the time alone with her, Ricardo's bribes and kickbacks gradually consumed his thoughts. He checked the activation switch under his suit coat cuff. Just two hours before, Beringer had placed the suit coat button with a microphone and inserted the miniature recorder inside the pocket lining. The IRS agent had continuously assured him that Ricardo would never spot the device. Jeannie's green satin gown, bare at the shoulders, fit her slim figure. A glistening gold locket around her neck contained a picture of the kids from last summer. Her pinned-up autumn hair matched her expressive brown eyes. Peter had the urge to bolt the party and run off somewhere with her. As they ascended the steel elevator to the upper ballrooms, they reminisced about their old time back at Bradford State. The simple and less fearful world no longer existed. Yet the professors, as well as friends they had not seen in years, came alive in the conversation. The large blue illuminated marquee with RICOM in red letters hovered like an ominous moon outside the ballroom. Cognizant of Beringer's mission, Peter's heart pounded. 
Two young brunettes in revealing sleek evening gowns greeted them at the small table. They asked Peter for his name. He and Jeannie were then given adhesive tags with Rycom's red oval logo printed on the left and their name on the right. Peter held Jeannie's tag near her bare shoulder. She grinned and slapped it onto her matching green purse. Well, at least I know who you are now, he said as they moved inside. Across the flowery carpet, the Rycom employees were clustered in small groups, most of them holding drinks from the bar at the far end. Peter visually swept the ballroom under the spreading gold chandeliers and down to the simulated rock waterfall in the corner. When he did not see Melvin, he wondered if his friend had panicked. He brought Jeannie around to his friends from the branch, especially the office girls whom he had known for years. But as time passed, Melvin's absence had him worried. A slow ascending applause surrounded the ballroom as Ricardo emerged from a side room up front. Even more imposing than Peter had remembered from the management meetings years ago, he wore a black velvet tuxedo with a red rose in the lapel. His precisely trimmed sideburns dipped from his brushed-back dark hair. He walked in an upright, proud manner of a man in total control. Peter continued to mingle, but drifted with Jeannie to the window span overlooking the lights in the silhouetted mountains. He gripped his watered-down drink and tracked Ricardo. Maybe Melvin had backed out. He might have to entrap the RICOM CEO himself. Freddie Tobin. Freddie? Peter, are you okay? Sure, I remember how Freddie Tobin used to drive his junk box through town without the inspection sticker. And I remember the cops screaming at him. I know, I know, said Jeannie, sipping on the champagne RICOM had provided. I can still smell the fumes, too. And Freddie used to wait just for the cops. Yeah, like he was taunting them. No muffler, crack windshield said Peter, nodding. It's like he's still there, Jeannie. Jeannie Carlyle. I may not be Jeannie Carlyle, but I still am Jeannie. But Freddie's long gone. Fifteen years gone. I wonder what Freddie Tobin is doing now. Well, he's probably married like the rest of us, with a house and kids in the suburbs somewhere. But where's the car? asked Peter as they both laughed. Peter's smile dropped when he heard Ricardo's high-pitched cackle. Across the room, Ricardo had gathered a half a dozen sharply dressed women from the sales department. They all jockeyed for position, each of them having a few comments, but all enthralled with Ricardo's animated charm. The collective giggling bubbled into the room, followed by Ricardo's smooth, almost mellow voice. Peter quickly turned away and smiled at Jeannie. Over her shoulder, he could see Melvin wobble through the main entrance across the ballroom. His cockeyed name tag hung midway down his gray and white checkered suit. He fiddled with the inside of his coat as his head darted from side to side. Peter raised his hand and Jeannie turned, but Melvin wandered aimlessly into the crowd near the bar. Peter excused himself from Jeannie and ran like a halfback, avoiding the incoming tacklers around his fellow employees. Melvin, munching at the buffet table, raised a cracker up as Peter approached. Melvin, where have you been? Oh, Peter, I was looking for you. He bit into a chunk of cheese. Peter spoke in a low voice. Ricardo is already here. This is not going to be easy. We need to get him alone in one of the side rooms. And to get him to talk about finances is going to be difficult. Oh, you're right, he said, his mouth full of cheese. I need a cigarette, Peter. Well, you'll have to wait. So Mildred didn't come with you. Melvin closed his eyes and shook his head. No. He swallowed the cheese and his face reddened. Sorry I asked, said Peter. 
Listen, I'm going to try and get Ricardo to talk business and then attempt to pull him outside the ballroom just for a few minutes. He panned the crowd, but he did not see Jeannie. I just have a bad feeling, like, like I should have let Berenger and his boys take care of this. No, no, Peter, we have to do this. Just keep reminding yourself what Ricardo is doing to the company and the country. Melvin, at this point, I really don't give a damn. Ricardo, with drink in hand, sauntered over to Jeannie and shook her hand. She tugged at her hair like she did every time nervousness set in. Peter stared at her for a few moments. Ricardo circled around his wife and then hovered within a few inches of her face. Stay right here, Melvin. He pushed the activation switch on his cuff and he jaunted across the ballroom. Ricardo leaned toward Jeannie and his right pant leg crossed her body, covering her shoes. Peter swept in from the left, catching Jeannie's eye first and then he stepped back. Ricardo stood up straight but fixated on her even as she gravitated toward Peter's arm. Mr. Ricardo, she jested, this is my husband, Peter. Ricardo panned in slow motion. His mouth slanted upward to one side, and he inconspicuously moved his smooth lips over his perfect white teeth. He had no beard stubble on his unlined face. His strident cologne enveloped the area. Not much taller than Peter, but under six feet, he still possessed an overwhelming presence. Peter Sturgis! He had a wispy handshake as if he had never shaken Peter's hand. You are in what section? I work with Melvin Bornstein in the financial office. Ricardo made no attempt to hide his adoring glances at Jeannie. We're the ones who balance everything out. Yes, of course. You're on the 507 report and on the 1600 flash readout. Timely. I don't ever remember it being brought to my attention that your reports have been late. They haven't. Ricardo gazed into Jeannie's eyes, and his eyelids were slightly heavy. Tell me, Jean, does the small-town life in the suburbs bore you? Well, not really. I kind of like the small-town life, she said, tightening her grip on Peter's arm. Oh, come on. Ricardo positioned himself closer. Everyone has fantasies, Jean. Thoughts about lives they might want to live? Right. In your wildest dreams, what do you desire? Oh, I, I don't know. Come on. Well, I'm sure every little girl wants to be a movie star, said Jeannie in a low voice. Ah, a movie star, yes, a movie star. With all the glamour and attention that entails. To be known by millions and adored by loyal fans. What a life. Jeannie grinned at Peter. Yes, what a life. You have the face for it, Jean. I can tell by the rounded contours in your eyes. Those eyes could attract every man in America. Peter raised his voice. I think you and I should talk. About what, Sturgis? He asked, not even looking at Peter. Melvin and I need to discuss some things with you. Peter tensed his fist. Certain things have come to our attention. Ricardo's sickened look infuriated Peter. This is a dinner party, not a board meeting, Sturgis. I'm sure you know your place. Yes, but do you know yours? Ricardo turned quickly this time, seemingly bemused at being confronted. He faced Peter, folded his arms, and then stroked his chin. What is it you want, Sturgis? Jeannie, I need to speak with Ricardo, said Peter. He squeezed her wrist. Sure, I can catch up on the gossip with the girls in the office, she said, turning to Ricardo. Nice to meet you, Mr. Ricardo. She held out her hand, but instead of shaking her hand this time, Ricardo kissed it gently, letting his lips remain on the skin. 
She retracted her hand, and with his hand on her back, Peter swung her away from Ricardo. See you in a few minutes, sweetheart. Jeanie nodded as Ricardo stared at her long chestnut hair swaying as she moved back to the guest. You have a very attractive wife. Certain things have come to our attention, Ricardo. Ricardo kept his eye on Jeanie. Peter bared his teeth as he spoke. As we have delved into some of the hidden files, Ricardo's eyes flared and his placid face tightened. Hidden files? What hidden files? My co-worker and I need to speak with you. We need to know how to proceed. Ha! <laughs> what is it you want, Sturgis? Money? He clamped his velvet hand on Peter's wrist. What would you be doing with hidden files? Peter extricated his wrist. I'm not looking for anything other than directions. Some of these things are... Ricardo moved within inches of his face. Who do you think you are? I think we should talk. Bastardo. I really think we should talk. You get your butt and the butt of the other guy up to my suite, 663. He pushed his finger firmly into Peter's chest. Ten minutes! At the outside window spin, the lights of Westerly twinkled like stars in the summer sky. Melvin sat on the ledge and tinkered with his device inside his coat. He looked up as Peter rushed over. That a damn thing. Melvin, this is it. Melvin pushed the plug back into place. There. It's taken me 20 minutes to get this thing working right. He held his friend's forearm. Melvin, I confronted Ricardo about the files. We have to be up there right now, in his suite. Oh, I don't know, Peter. He guided Melvin off the ledge, and as if he were Melvin's dancing partner, they sidestepped toward the ballroom elevators. As the elevated doors closed, Peter kept asking himself why he had let Berenger talk him into this operation. More than anxiety from the risk, Ricardo's improper advances toward Jeannie infuriated him. Chapter 5 Ricardo kicked the door open and burst into the suite. Then in a single motion he slammed the heavy door, causing Martin, now fully dressed in his tuxedo, to look up from the phone. You better get your act together, Martin. I want to know who the hell is responsible for pillaging the Westerly records. Martin continued on the phone in a hushed voice as he spoke. Yes, yes, I understand. And you'll fly them up here right now? Martin, listen to what I'm saying. We have a major problem here. I don't want to leave for Cibola because of this, but I won't take the risk. Stupid subordinates. Whatever it takes. Martin hung up the phone and instantly spun around. Ricardo, I was on the phone lining up those women you requested. You listen to me. I have two goons from the Westerly branch telling me they've been into hidden files. Do you realize the implications of this? So they've been in the files. That doesn't mean they know anything. Files have all been encoded and equipped with access passwords only members of our inner circle can gain entry into. He stroked his chin as he thought. I'm telling you, I just talked to this boy wonder who works in financial. He brought up the fact that he and some other clown gained access to the files. I just ordered them up here. Martin sat on the edge of the bureau and crossed his arms. You should have ignored it. Now they're going to be suspicious when they don't need to be. We could have done some behind-the-scenes work and squouched the thing right away. But I'll tell you one thing. He pushed a new rose through his lapel and threw the older flower into the wastebasket. This guy had the most gorgeous wife I've ever seen in my life. This woman is perfect. I tell you, perfect.
That's the least of our concerns. Martin opened up the laptop and accessed the personnel records for the Westerly branch. In a few seconds, he looked over at Ricardo. What was the guy's name? Ricardo mixed himself a scotch. You know, I feel as though I've met her before. Ricardo, you come in here hell-bent for leather, and now you're infatuated with this, this, this wife. What was the guy's name? Sturgis. Peter Sturgis. He's working with another guy, but I don't have his name. I assume he'll bring the other guy up here with him. Sturgis. Okay, here we are. Well, this man has won efficiency citations. Organizes company family activities in the summer. Sounds like the perfect employee. I want the wife up here. Have her brought to my portion of the suite. <laughs> You're kidding, right? Bring up the wife. Her name is Jeannie, Ricardo thought, and then he stroked his chin. Sounds tacky. I would just call her Jean. Martin looked up from the laptop, and his mouth slowly opened. Why the hell are you staring at me, Martin? I would suggest that we deal with these people. If Sturgis finds out you're hot to try for his wife, he'd be more apt to use his stuff against us. I don't know how they could have gotten into the files. Ricardo lifted the other phone on the night table. He called the hotel manager directly and informed him he wished Sturgis's wife to be brought up to the suite to wait for her husband. At the laptop, Martin pinched the bridge of his nose, and Ricardo laughed as he set down the gold and ivory French-style phone. Somehow Sturgis's wife seemed to fulfill some insatiable need within him. Martin, in his feeble little way, had no conception of that. All his life, even after Cibola, he had sought the right woman. And intuitively, he sensed Jean would share his thoughts and dreams. I think you've just made a colossal mistake, said Martin, still at the computer. Ricardo straightened his hair in the mirror. I'm not worried about Sturgis. There's a way of punishing people for their crimes. Crimes? You don't have to punish anyone. Just pack your bags and head for Cibola. Before Ricardo could respond, someone knocked on the heavy outside door. Martin hit the power button on the laptop and pushed it back on the table. Then he stood. Ricardo squinted and nodded as he pressed his lips. Peter's heart pounded as the wood panel door swung open. A small man with graying hair smiled quickly. He stood before a multi-room suite with several TVs and wide beds. Peter Sturgis. Well, I'm Martin Vasquez. I'm Mr. Ricardo's aide. Please come in. Thank you. Peter motioned Melvin forward and they entered the room. Ricardo, drink in hand, stood with his back toward them in front of the wood veneer dresser to the right. A spreadsheet extended from his hand like a waterfall to the floor. This is my associate, Melvin Bornstein. A pleasure to meet you both. Uh, please sit down, gentlemen. Martin gestured toward a couch to the right. Can I uh, get you a drink? No, nothing for me. With the recorder running, Peter's nerves prevented him from drinking anything. Uh, I'll have a scotch, said Melvin. Ricardo's head slowly rotated to the left as he set down the papers. Good man, Melvin. Scotch is the drink of choice in this establishment. Martin, get him the damn drink. Right. Ricardo inched across the room like a gunfighter ready to draw. Now tell me, which one of you bastards is responsible for hacking my company files? Ah, I'm the bastard, said Melvin, glancing at his button mic. Peter prayed Melvin would not reveal his true intent. Ricardo produced a wide and fixed smile. What exactly do you cowboys know about hacking files? Is this something we shouldn't know? asked Peter. Ricardo slowly turned as he had downstairs and eyed Peter with an odd, vengeful sneer. He set his drink on the end table. 
You know, Sturgis, I don't like you. I didn't like you from the moment I met you. Peter's arms tensed. He wanted to smash his fist into Ricardo's pipe cleaner nose, and he imagined blood running down his smooth cheeks. Extreme arrogance allowed him to think he should dominate everyone around him. By trapping Ricardo on audio, Peter could counter his superior attitude. Well, you're going to like me even less when I tell you we're aware you have been paying off government officials with a well-planned and well-orchestrated series of moves of kickbacks and bribery. With a drink in hand, Martin froze midway across the room. He had a quizzical look on his face and then handed the scotch to Melvin. Uh, well, we will admit to nothing, of course, he said with a cautious grin. My question to you, Sturgis, uh, would relate to the files themselves. Are you in possession of uh, those files? Oh, we are, answered Melvin, and he gulped the scotch. Then he swished the ice cubes around the glass. Ricardo stood rigid and glared at Peter. Who do you ingrates think you're dealing with? I have the power to ruin you both. You get those files, or I assure you, Sturgis, it will be the most regrettable move you ever make in your life. Why are you so frightened? asked Peter. Ricardo stepped back to the table and spoke with a coy look on his face. Do you know your wife wants me? Peter stormed toward Ricardo and pointed as he raised his voice. You don't mention my wife. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. And you don't know her, Sturgis. You don't know what she does behind your back. Peter's jaw tightened, and his voice shook as he forced out the words. There's a long record on disc of all your dealings under the table. She told me she has to be careful, Sturgis, because you have such a high opinion of her. She doesn't want to ruin your suburban life. Peter's fists were now locked tight. Don't push me. She said she wanted to unzip my pants and... Ricardo! Marvin swept in from behind. Stop it. Let's try and stick to the matter at hand. You talk to them, Martin. I'll be in my suite for a few minutes. Ricardo retreated through a side door and disappeared into another room. Martin stared at the door and then faced Peter. I apologize for that. Ricardo is a very proud man and he threatens and intimidates when he feels undermined. Ricardo emerged from the other room and grinned in the doorway. He precariously took several steps into the suite and closed the door. Uh, could, I, could I have another drink? asked Melvin from the sofa. Of course, replied Martin, and he took Melvin's empty glass. He shook his head toward the liquor cabinet. What do we do with this information? asked Peter. We are employees of RICOM first. If the information about kickbacks gets out, there would be a major scandal in this country. I suppose you don't rise to the top without paying off the right people. Ricardo's smooth cheeks puffed like an exotic fish. Sturgis, you can take your records and shove them. I will not be blackmailed. I'm not trying to blackmail you, Ricardo. I told you that downstairs. What do you want us to do with this information? Martin, at the liquor cabinet, dropped ice in Melvin's drink and spoke in a louder voice. The same rules apply to us in the upper levels of the corporate world. You have to work within your parameters, Peter. If you're in a game, you have to play by the rules of the game. If you don't, you lose. Well, I understand. Melvin's words were slightly slurred. Yeah, you should listen to him, Peter. Well, that's a good thought, Melvin, said Ricardo. Sturgis thinks he knows so much. He opened the adjoining door and peered inside the other suite. With a sly expression, he pointed at Peter. You see, Sturgis, when I said your wife was attracted to me, 
When I said she wanted me, I wasn't kidding. The woman is hot. Shut up. Don't blame me. She's the one who insisted on coming up to my suite. All I have to do is go back there now and drop my pants. Peter rushed at Ricardo, knocked him on the carpet, and pummeled his face. Martin and then Melvin moved quickly and pulled back Peter's arms. Peter had landed enough blows to bloody Ricardo's nose and mouth. Martin wedged his shoulder between Ricardo and Peter as Ricardo staggered to his face. Ricardo held his silk handkerchief over his bloodied nose. You're paying hell for this, Sturgis, but trying to destroy me. I never tried to destroy you, said Peter, rubbing his bruised knuckles. Your wife is in my suite. Ricardo opened the door and Peter followed him inside. Jeannie emerged from the bathroom, purse in hand. Peter's face flushed, but he could not move. Peter, what's wrong? You told her to come up here. She said she wanted to come up here, said Ricardo. Jeannie furrowed her brow and seemed cognizant of Ricardo's perverted game. I never said I wanted to come up here. You told the front desk to get me up here. She's covering, Sturgis. She plays around, Jeannie approached Ricardo. You twister. Peter, he had them tell me to come up here. I know that, Jeannie, I know. Jeannie's awareness seemed to upset Ricardo, still pressing the blood-soaked handkerchief to his nose, and he returned to the other suite. Martin hovered in the doorway. I apologize to you both. He's used to getting what he wants. Listen, I think what we need to do, Peter, is to meet with you later this week. I'll have you flown to the corporate offices. We'll sit down with my people. Step by step, we'll go through what you have. And I thank both you and Melvin for uncovering this flaw in our system. There's always room in the upper levels for people who are competent and committed to the welfare of the company. Well, I'm not looking for that, Martin. I'm very happy here in Westerly with my wife and kids. Martin held his arm firmly. Well, you can even be happier if you're running the branch. Ricardo's voice bellowed from the other room. Peter, holding Jeannie's hand, followed Martin back to the first suite. Ricardo held Melvin's recorder and wiring system in his hands. You tell us you don't want anything, Sturgis? What the hell is this? Martin, these people are working with someone. He's trying to ruin me is what he's trying to do. Ricardo pulled out a cell phone from his tuxedo and quickly punched in a number. Jeannie moved closer to Peter and put her arm around him. Ricardo, who are you calling? My personal security. Peter stepped back as Ricardo fanned a small black handgun from his pocket. Don't anyone try anything. He frisked Peter's coat and ripped out the recorder. You're a damned fool, Sturgis. Martin clawed at his shoulder and argued in a higher voice. Ricardo, listen to me. Let's try and reason this through. Calling security is stupid. If what he says is true, then we just get to Cibola and realign the whole thing. This is Ricardo. Send armed security people to my suite. You'll be taking away three individuals to... He lowered his eyelids as if he were fatigued or preoccupied. His last words were constrained. Get the limo. Bring it to the downstairs parking garage. Peter stepped forward, but Ricardo thrust the gun in his face. What are you going to do with us? What is Cibola? What I'm going to do? He paused and winced as he thought. Sturgis, you have the remotest idea of what's going to happen to you. My husband seems to have listened to the wrong people. Ricardo's eyes glistened again as he spoke, and he lowered the gun. He stared at her again. And you, you will never know, but I will have you, the way I want you, without him. 
You son of a bitch, cried Peter, keeping his distance from the gun. If Melvin and I don't return, they'll go right after you. If you murder us, murder? Ricardo began laughing. The man says murder, Martin. Sturgis, I have the power to make you pay for what you've done to me. Power lies beyond the grave. You will be praying that I had murdered you this evening. You want to see the New Year, Sturgis? The Millennium? I'll make sure you see the Millennium. The year 2000. Only it won't take five months. Let's see how your world will be in the year 2000. As he spoke, the sweet door flew open again, and two men in black suits and turtlenecks, both brandishing small automatic weapons, ran inside. With a sly smile, he glanced at Peter and signaled them across the room. I want them brought to the limo. He slowly waved the gun with a subtle swagger as a smile drifted upward. Martin, get your things. We're out of here. Fly to Denver. I'm not taking any chances. Martin breathed faster and loosened his tie. His words were forced and garbled. I think this is the premier mistake. Leave them up here. Doesn't matter what they did or what they will do. It's all a part of this reality, Ricardo. Their reality. Martin, you're starting to bore me. Get down to the limo or you can stay behind. Oh, and that's it. His eyes brewed with a glowing anger. After all these years, if I don't get in the limo right now, I get left behind. You're losing your touch, Ricardo, and mock my word, it's going to cost you more than you think. He closed in on Ricardo and raised his voice. You, you're a fool. Peter thought Ricardo might reconsider, but he motioned the security guys toward the door. Jeannie's hands trembled as they pushed Peter and passed Ricardo in military procession. But as they neared the door, he called out. Sturgis, all the emotion had left his voice. You made one fatal mistake. You challenged me. I never challenged you, Ricardo. When people think they can challenge me, they risk a living hell. Get them out of here! One of the men drilled his gun barrel into Peter's shoulder as he and Jeannie followed Melvin down the narrow hotel corridor toward a rear stairwell. As their shoes echoed on the concrete stairs, he searched in vain for a way out. Minutes later, they emerged in the hotel's parking lot garage. A black stretch limo rounded the corner. The doors popped open and they were shoved under the rear seat. As the limo's tires screeched, they banked left and out of the garage toward town. Peter detailed what Melvin had found on the computer files and how they had met with Berenger at the lodge hall. Jeannie said nothing as her eyes filled with tears. Peter, guilt-ridden, regretted having listened to Berenger, wearing the recording device and trying to ensnare Ricardo had just been a dumb thing to do. His thoughts centered on Westerly, his home at the end of the Spring Street cul-de-sac, and he pictured his children now sleeping in their cozy beds. How would they go on without a mother and father? Jeannie probably felt the same emotions about the kids and their life together. As she held on to him, Peter wondered just what Ricardo had planned. They routed the limo directly to the Westerly Airport tarmac. Peter questioned why Ricardo had not murdered them back at the plaza. Additional security men accompanied them across the tarmac and toward the small jet, hissing in the darkness ahead. RICOM, emblazoned in red letters across the forward nose, designated the ownership of the jet. The men shoved them up the extended stairway. They were forced into seats in a spacious panel lounge area in the jet's midsection. Almost immediately, the jet rolled forward. 
and within minutes they zoomed skyward at a steep angle. In the low cabin light, as the engines hummed, Jeanie leaned on his shoulder, but Peter's fists were still clenched. Rage against Ricardo now supplanted any guilt about the recording device. A man in a short brown leather coat entered the cabin from the rear. He said nothing but jabbed something into Peter's upper arm as the two other men held him. The man holding the hypodermic needle quickly became a blurred image as Peter grew drowsy. His eyes hung heavy and he tried to stand but he fell forward. Jeanie lay on the floor next to him. He reached out and put his arm around her. The touch of her smooth evening gown and soft skin faded into dark unconsciousness. Chapter 6 Westerly, New York, May 11th, 2000 A wrinkled blue polyester sheet clung to Peter's bare chest, and his feet hung over the edge of a hard, narrow mattress. He had trouble keeping his eyes open. A pervasive grogginess, as if he had a severe hangover, clouded his head. The smell of fried bacon, mixed with the scent of a cheap perfume, spread throughout the hot, musty, wood-paneled room. Sunlight cut through the cracked open door, and light tried to break into the tiny bedroom around the white plastic mini-blinds. He rolled under the sheet, and a mass of frizzy red hair lashed against his shoulder. A petite woman sat up quickly. Peter instinctively jumped back. Her dark eyes cursed him before she even spoke. What the hell are you doing, Pete? Peter fell onto the bright green shag carpet. In his briefs, he propped himself against a scratched dresser with open drawers. Where am I? You're sleeping another one off, loser. She pushed her hair off her bony shoulders. Her venomous eyes focused on him. I spend nine frigging hours on the late shift, and you deliberately wake me up. Just cut the crap, all right? If you want to pounce on somebody, then go find one of your sluts from the bowling alley. She flipped over and yanked the blue sheets over her shoulder. Peter stared incredulously at the crumpled sheets and black and white quilted comforter crumpled on the rug. Through the door crack, Peter noticed someone darting away from a center table. She grumbled from under the sheets. Your problem is you're a friggin' slacker. I am? Go ahead, laugh. It's real funny that I work on the assembly line where you gallivant wherever the hell you want. You lazy lummox. Who are you? Get out of here. Let me sleep. I just asked who you are, said Peter in a low voice. The door slowly opened and a kid, maybe 17 or 18, appeared in the doorway. He had a mop of brown hair, bloodshot blue eyes, and wore a multicolored headband. Don't start again. Come on, man. He had no overt sensitivity in his voice. All you two do is argue. You've argued for 20 years. Never mind me. Give each other a break. Give old Curtis a break, okay? He retreated through the doorway. The redhead kept her back to him under the sheets. In the front room, the kid faced the little green stove and stuck a fork into the sizzling bacon strips. Peter grabbed a pair of pants off the rug. The pants, as well as the shoes and socks he found in separate parts of the room, fit perfectly. He tightened his belt and exited the darkened bedroom. 
two scratched pale green plastic plates, a couple of coffee mugs and utensils were set on a small gray speckled formica table. The aqua-colored kitchen counter housed a small portable TV near the small end window and separated the rectangular living area to his left. He leaned toward the side window as the kid lifted the sputtering bacon with a large fork from the cast iron pan and set it on a paper towel. Through the dirt-smeared glass, he saw dozens of trailers lined along a looping road, and the Ganke Mountains were silhouetted against the fluffy clouds. Peter slowly smiled. Westerly. The kid stopped midway across the room with the bacon still on the fork. Peter looked into his tired eyes. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to upset you. I don't think I've ever heard you ever say you were sorry. He distributed the bacon onto both plates. Is that what Ricardo told you to say? What? He sidestepped to the coffee maker and pulled out the steaming carafe. Hey man, this is a red letter day, Dad. Dad? Goosebumps covered his body as he checked the insurance company's calendar on the paneling. May 11th, 2000. Very clever. Listen, I talked to Henry down at the shop. He said his wife knows somebody in Bellevue that might need a welder. He don't know that you told Crandall to shove it. He doesn't? asked Peter. No, it would mean taking the train. I'll give you the money for that just to get you going. Peter remained confused. I appreciate that. You do? Of course I do. What's your... You gonna eat or just stand there gawking at me? I need my cell phone. <laughs> you don't have no cell phone. Peter could not muster a response. As he sat motionless on the padded chrome frame chair, the kid nudged his waist and pointed at the bacon and eggs. He pinched a slice of bacon with his fingers and crunched it between his teeth. Crisp, just the way I like it. Well, that's a change, said the kid, and eggs over hard. Peter spotted the address labels on the sci-fi comic books and the UFO magazine scattered across the table. Over light, Curtis. Over light. Next thing you're going to want is quiche. Right. He chewed the bacon with the salty eggs as he grabbed a piece of heavily buttered toast. And he saw his own name and address label on a fishing magazine. Peter Sturgis, 87 Pimento Court, Westerly, New York. As he savored the eggs and bacon wedges, Curtis talked about last night's baseball scores, but Peter's thoughts remained transfixed on the Rikon party at the plaza. The clever Ricardo had performed an elaborate charade meant to convince him that he lived in a trailer park outside of town and he'd hired these two people to fool him into thinking that nine months had passed. He worried about Jeannie and the kids. Listen, I have to get home. You can tell Ricardo this isn't funny, and I want to know where my wife and friend Melvin are. What are you talking about, Dad? Curtis even had his height and brown hair. His eyes were blue. Then he thought about his own kids. Okay, this has been very intriguing, but I have responsibilities in my life. First, I want to know what Ricardo did with Jeannie. Ricardo? asked Curtis, and he set down his fork. Then he sipped on his coffee from a brown speckled mug. Who was Ricardo? Somebody from downtown? Peter stood and spoke in a loud voice. Listen, kid, I want to know what's going on here. The woman yelled from the bedroom. Will you shut up, Pete? What do you want to know, man? Ricardo. Where's Ricardo? Or Martin? I was on the plane when they injected me. Curtis tilted his head. 
This is some kind of weird joke, isn't it? You're just trying to make me laugh. I remember when I was a boy, you always came home and you made me laugh. I knew that when you made me laugh that you loved me. Peter creased his brow. Martin had mentioned a place called Cibola, somewhere near Denver. Concern yielded to panic. He jimmied the metal door and pushed it open with his shoulder. The sun warmed his face as he turned toward the mountains. Judging from the fields and distance from the range, he stood less than a mile from Grayson's farm, south of Westerly. The top of the plaza poked over the rounded slope's treetops, and to his right the cascading Stanton River wound south through the rock cliffs toward Belleville. Spring had filled the landscape with flowers and, and opening tree buds. The trailers were positioned around a long circular asphalt drive. A white rail fence bordered the Grayson Fields. Near the trailer steps, a shiny black motorcycle glistened in the sunlight, but he had parked his Highlander back at the plaza. Curtis called from the open door as Peter increased his pace. Calling a taxi might be the best course of action. He fumbled for his wallet, but he stopped when he found his credit cards missing. The hundred bucks he had placed in the back compartment had vanished. He did not even recognize this leather wallet. Maybe Billy Grayson, who worked in shipping at Rycom, would give him a ride into town. He stepped along a wide soybean field and sprinted up a dirt lane leading to the large white farmhouse. The peppered-haired Grayson in his blue overalls worked on a worn red tractor in the back of the farmhouse. Mr. Grayson, it's Peter Sturgis. Grayson continued working with his screwdriver and socket wrench. Peter caught his breath under the spreading apple tree near the tractor. Mr. Grayson, it's Peter Sturgis. Grayson's brow furrowed deep, and he hardly moved his mouth as he spoke in a caustic tone. You get the hell off my property or I'll call the cops. What? You heard me, loser. Or wasn't a few nights in the pokey enough as stealing my wife's money? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, Mr. Grayson. I just came by to have Billy give me a ride back downtown. Grayson threw down the socket wrench and picked up his pitchfork. You get the hell out of here now, Sturgis, or I'm calling the cops. Peter backed away as Grayson thrust the wood-handled pitchfork. He closed his eyes briefly as he retreated to the road. Ricardo may have actually changed his world. He reached the road and jogged toward town. As the interstate traffic buzzed on the blue bridge band near the hotel, he debated whether to call home or just go right to the parking garage and get the Highlander. Maybe he should call the police. Once around the parking circle, he entered the hotel through the bronze revolving door. A white-lettered black marquee indicated Susan was the main speaker at the Lions Club monthly meeting. Peter stepped onto the same escalator that he and Jeannie had taken before to the party. His headache had not subsided, and he rubbed his temples as he ascended to the second-floor ballroom area. Susan wore a red pantsuit and talked to a cluster of people outside the upper function rooms. Peter raised his hand into the air. Susan! Susan! The mayor turned with a smile that quickly soured. Susan, it's me, Peter! One of her aides, a husky kid with gel hair, veered from the group and physically blocked Peter's path as Susan disappeared into the function room. Get out of here, Sturgis. I need to speak with Susan. I thought you were in jail. What? Be a good old boy and beat it. Peter backed toward the hotel phone on the carpeted center support pole. He had the front desk place a call to his house. 
Inside the ballroom, Susan's voice boomed through the clear speakers. The phone line rang for the longest time before a computerized message informed him that he had dialed a number not in service. Quickly, he tried his number again, but with the same result. For a few moments, he stared through the brightly lit chandeliers into the lobby. Then he gazed at the shops on the second level where he and Janie had walked. He still had the outside line and called Melvin's number. Some child answered the phone, and when he got his mother, Peter asked for Melvin. The woman told him he had the wrong number. Peter held the receiver in his hands and then punched in the numbers for the Westerly Police Station. He asked for Don Williams. Williams. Don, this is Peter Sturgis. Look, Sturgis, this better be important. God, I'm glad I found you. Donnie, listen. Last night, Jeannie and I were at the Rikon party. The guy who's the CEO, Ricardo? Sturgis, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Don't waste my time. Wait, Donnie. The guy abducted Jeannie, Melvin, and me in his jet. I ended up at a trailer park in a place called Pimento Court. Well, you live there, you dumbass. Well, check it, Rycom. Rycom? Asked Williams. You been popping those pills again? What? If you bother me one more time, I'll put you in the tank. Got it? The line went dead. Peter grabbed the phone book and flipped the pages. He checked and rechecked for the Rycon listing. Slowly, he lowered the phone book and backed across the carpet. Catatonic, he descended the escalator. Then his chest heaved up and down as if adrenaline had been injected into his gut. He ran across the polished tiles and around the bronze revolving door. Once outside, he scrambled up a narrow path between the shrubs covering a small knoll. A few moments later, he had a view of the interstate and the mountains. He panned down range but stopped midway. A darker, smaller structure replaced the white Rikon building, which had been nestled over many wooded acres. He grasped an adjacent aluminum light pole, slid into the mulch and bushes. Tears wandered down his beard-stubbled cheeks as he whimpered. Genie! He banged his wrist to stop his hands from shaking. His leg muscles were weak as he staggered across the center line on Main Street. Eddie Fitzpatrick's yellow gas station sign slowly spun atop the tall metal pole. Eddie, standing near the register, looked out the station window. When Peter passed the pumps, Eddie appeared in the doorway. Eddie, how are you doing? Sturgis. This Peter Sturgis had not endeared himself to the westerly citizens. His main concern right now was finding Jeannie. Eddie, I'm looking for Jeannie. Oh, have you seen her? I Hey, I don't have your black book of bimbo, Sturgis. Hey, I guess you wouldn't know. Hey, you find work yet? Peter peered over the fence and down Main Street. No, not yet. But check with the unemployment office. They have a new computer, lists everything within a 50-mile radius. Somebody must need a welder. Peter nodded as his throat tightened. I really do wish you good luck, Sturgis. He lowered his head and, without looking back, ambled down Main Street. Big Fred Watson exited the Brick Chamber of Commerce building. Fred! Fred, it's me, Peter. Fred, dressed in a gray business suit, glared at him. I'll go to hell. Fred, I need help. Well, then call the mental health people, Sturgis, and you keep the hell away from me and my wife. He walked away at a brisk pace, but he slowed and spun on the sidewalk. Tears glazed his eyes. Haven't you caused enough damage in my life? What? 
Fred, I don't understand. Fred continued down the sidewalk as Peter reached a cement flower encasement around a streetlight pole. He put his head in his hands and breathed deeply. Finding Jeannie might be impossible. He focused on the lodge hall behind Edward's hardware store across the street. Perhaps they knew something about Melvin. He wandered off the sidewalk and crossed Main Street. An oncoming bus roared toward him and a horn blared as he sprinted to the other side of Main Street. The simple cinder block building where he had met Melvin and Berenger had a parking lot full of cars. He climbed the wooden stairs and opened the aluminum door. Cigarette smoke hung heavy over the local crowd. He raised his hand to Richie behind the bar. Hey, Richie! The bartender had a serious face. Hey, what's your problem, Sturgis? Rich, you maxed out your tab, so forget it. We can't afford to foot the bill for you anymore. Peter gripped the wooden bar. Brian O'Connell brought his empty mug up to Richie, but quickly kept his back to Peter as Richie refilled the mug. Peter knew better than to say anything more. Tommy Carpus, the high school coach, seemed oblivious to his presence. The front door opened and Curtis, wearing jeans and a leather vest and undershirt, strutted inside. He carried his shiny black motorcycle helmet under his arm as he approached. Buy your beer, Dad? Sure. He sat on the stool next to Peter and ordered two beers. Hey, Roberta Joe is pretty upset the way you stormed out. Look, why don't you let me bring you over to Belleville tomorrow? Richie set down the beers. Peter stared at the golden bubbles moving through the beer and the water droplets forming on the side of the glass. Was this Ricardo's ultimate punishment? Sending him across time and space and banishing him from everything he had known? Curtis, do I know a woman named Jeannie? Do you know a woman named Jeannie? Uh, Jeannie? No. Peter nodded and stood. In his mind, he sifted through the possibilities as he looked into multiple versions of himself in the bevel bar mirror. He envisioned alternative groupings of realities that existed side by side, each slightly different stacked up to infinity. Cibola, this place in Colorado, had somehow allowed Ricardo to create these coexisting realities. Dad, you're acting kind of funny. Why don't you sit down? You all right? Peter leaned on his clenched fist and positioned himself on the adjacent stool. I don't know, Curtis. Anything you want to talk about? No, you wouldn't understand. Try me. Peter shook his head and held the edges of the glass and then laughed. This is unbelievable. He looked into Curtis's blue eyes. Curtis, I need you to bring me up to Spring Street. Spring Street? New development near the mountains. Okay, I know where you mean. You want to go over there? It's personal. Hey, I got no problem with that. Just don't go getting me between Roberta Joe and another woman. I won't. The ear whished through Peter's motorcycle helmet as Curtis banked for the development and slowed the motorcycle at the cul-de-sac. Peter's Tudor-style home slowly came into view in the street lamp's dim light. A black Volvo and a smaller Audi were parked in the driveway. There were no bicycles or kids' toys around the yard. Peter took off the helmet and his stomach sunk as he walked up the driveway to the front walk. He hesitantly started up the brick steps and he pushed the doorbell. A young woman in her 20s soon appeared in the doorway. Can I help you? Is this the Sturgis residence? Oh no, sir. I'm Debbie Allen. I live here with my boyfriend, Brad. 
I think you have the wrong street. I don't recall any Sturgis on Spring Street. Peter backed down the stairs and across the grass. The boyfriend shouted something from the doorway. Curtis stepped forward and held Peter's shoulders. Who are you looking for? Peter pressed his lips and he gently shook his head. He studied his son's eyes and square jaw. His throat tightened as he truly understood that Jeannie and the kids were gone. Let me bring you back to the trailer, Dad. Peter looped his leg over the seat. He placed the helmet on his head. My world has disappeared, Curtis, he said as tears flooded down his cheeks. He buried his head in his cupped hand. His son's wiry arm enveloped his shoulder. I have no hope. Ah, oh, there's always hope, Dad. I don't give a damn how bad things are. Let me help. What can I do? Get me the hell out of here. A mental upheaval occurs when any life circumstance changes. For Peter Sturgis, he has lost everything. His standing in the community, his job, his family, and his beloved Jeannie. I remember working in a chain department store before I moved to California. Before I became an outside rep in Los Angeles, I took a job in an identical store in the chain. Yet all my friends were gone. Perhaps this is how I had Ricardo put Peter Sturgis in the identical town with everything gone. Like the fitting of old, Peter Sturgis formulates a plan and his execution of that plan becomes dramatic. Join me for episode two of A World Without Her. I'm Robert P. Fitton, skipping through the parallel universes on my original de Havilland DH-4 biplane. See you next week. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.
chapter 7. is listed as part of the Nexus series. Let's start this engine, or should I say, let's mount this pony. When you're dead, you're dead by Robert P. Fitton begins now.